Well, hello, and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm Jeff Blackburn, your host, and my friends, we are in for a treat today because our new friend, Anna LeBaron, is with us. Anna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to talk to you. Oh, well, it's an honor for us to have you in. Um, for those of you who don't know Anna, um, she is the author of a book she just wrote. It's a memoir she wrote called The Polygamous Daughter. And I know you do a lot of speaking and and um, uh, publicity stuff with book launches and things like that as well. But um, for today, this is about you're on a book tour right now. You're kind of touring the country right now. How's that oh. been going for you? It's been going really great. And the, the people that I'm meeting, the people that especially that have already read the book and the book discussions that we're having have just been incredible and and heart transforming for me just being able to hear people's other people's stories because when you've read a book like mine it have you know things bubble up for right. other people and then being able being able to have the honor of of hearing other people's stories as they tell me the things that have bubbled up for them is just a, a heart journey that I'm loving being on and being able to be out there and meeting new people. I'm extroverted at heart, like 100% extroverted. So meeting new people and talking to them and um, getting to know people is just such a fun experience, experience mm. for me. So I'm loving every minute of it. Oh, good, good. And I and for people who have not got it, I mean, we we have people on sometimes that have written books, and um, I don't if if they have not received it yet. If you've not um, got the Polygamous Daughter yet, first of all, um, you need to get it and you need to read it, and um, you'll thank me for it. But I do think it's worth saying that it is there is some like you said the stories bubble up for people because mm -hmm. there's some intense stories in there, and I don't often talk about you know, trigger language on our show, but there may be, you know, it's probably, there might be some things we talk about for if there's little kids with someone that it may or may not go there, but just to keep that in mind as they're listening, yeah. or if there's any kind of, um, just to be sensitive that there's some, some sensitive topics today. And mm -hmm. I also want to share with my listeners that, um, one of the reasons I feel so honored to have you on is, um, when I read your book, it was very clear that you are a person who has, you have put in your work. I mean, you've got an incredible story, but even so much of your story is the background, but in, in these latter years, like you have done clearly done a ton of uh, personal work and soul work and uh, probably hours upon hours with counselors and all these different things. And I just want to honor you for that. I mean, that's really just very, um, that's part of why I'm honored to have you on is to know that the person I'm talking to has such depth. And so thank you for, for putting in all that hard work. Well, it, it's been, it is, it has been a long journey. And I say sometimes that I have pressed in for healing and wholeness and um, wholeheartedness and sound mindness, probably more than anyone I know. It's just been a, a driving force in my life to, to be free from the things that, that shaped my younger years. Hmm. And one thing I would like to add for your listeners because because I know that the book does have things that bubble up for people, mm -hmm. there's a resource on my website that has some journal prompts written by a licensed professional counselor that um, is a personal friend of mine that he read the book and then and created this resource for people to have a place where if things bubble up or are triggered, using that counseling word, mm -hmm. um, they, they have a place to where they some of that can get processed out. And then if you have if they still have residual um, feelings that are really strong or very um, difficult to process, to please find help with a counselor. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Anna, um, let's uh, let's jump in for. So the book's called The Polygamous Daughter. Um, but the, the whole story, I mean, kind of the, the headliner is, is that your father, uh, Ervil, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Um, you know, Ervil LeBaron is sort of this notorious guy. I wasn't aware of it. Although once I, you can kind of search it online anymore and you, it pops up pretty quickly. He's sort mm -hmm. of, some people call him sort of the Mormon Charles Manson. I mean, he was yes. uh, a cult leader, um, responsible for a number of murders 
and this is the life that you grew up in. This was your father. Um, and so just to get people kind of the groundwork, this is the frame that we're, this story starts from. Yeah. Yes. My, my father, his name is very Googleable. <laughs> you, you Google his name, Erville LeBaron, E-R-V-I-L, for those who are curious. And when your dad has his own Wikipedia page and his own Murderpedia page, mm. you know you're in trouble as a grown adult looking back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <clears throat> well, it's this uh, part of the context that you grew up in was polygamy. Your dad... Um, I think was something like 13 wives or something. And mm-hmm. you had somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 siblings. Does that sound about right? Yes. He fathered 50 children that I'm able to count, like know their names. And, and there are probably more than that. There were so, so many step siblings that were brought in from previous marriages from mm-hmm. his wives. So I say I had 50 plus siblings. Okay. And depending on who's doing the counting is, what number you land on that's past the 50 mark. Okay. Well, you know, um, there's a lot of, we're going to touch, we're going to kind of jump all over um, your book today. And so, um, and there'll be a few spoilers, I guess, for people that haven't read it yet, but it won't matter. It, you'll, you'll read the book and it'll still be just as interesting, but. Um, <laughs> well, let me say that I recorded the audio version of the book oh, and it's awesome. on audible.com. And it took me eight and a half hours. It's eight and a half hours of audio. So we do not have that much time. So there's no way we can spoil the whole thing. <laughs> okay, good, good. Um, well, look, there's so much mystery for people. I mean, and there's so many questions just even out of the gate with just the framework we've laid down. But let's just start with um, what is a mystery to a lot of folks, which is just the nature of polygamy. Um, you know, you grow up in a polygamous culture. And if you could just sort of explain what is that like growing up in that in that, um, you know, in that culture. I mean, you've got a number of, I think sister wives is the term that you called mm-hmm. them. Um, yes. What's it like growing up in that sort of environment? Well, the, the group that I grew up in is nothing like what's portrayed on the TLC channel show called Sister Wives. Okay. And as a side note, Christine Brown is one of the people depicted in that reality show, and she is my cousin. So, um, but, but what I experienced is nothing like what is portrayed on that show. What I experienced is probably closer to 95% of other people, maybe 99% of other people who have experienced the practice of polygamy personally. And the, that show is the, like the anomaly as far as the way it's being portrayed. And, and I'm happy that they're portraying it in such a different light mm-hmm. and and also that they let their children choose okay. whether they're going to continue that practice. But we did not have a choice. Most people that grow up in these very closed, very secretive, very hidden groups are raised to um, stifle any type of desire or um, any type of dreams or aspirations of um, getting out or living a different way, none of that is acceptable. And even the ones that do manage to break out and get out of it are shunned and not allowed to have contact with family. So for the most part, if you are a, if you are one of the few that gets out, you're really starting life over. Hmm. And it, it's a very difficult way to live for those who manage to step outside of that culture. Hmm. Not all the groups are like that, where they're closed and secretive and hidden. More and more, they're, they're, they're being exposed. And so they're kind of growing a little bit less um, secretive. But when we were living it, and back in the day of the 70s and 80s, when that was part of our life, because my father was wanted by the law, by the FBI and the Mexican police, depending on which country we were living in at the time. We, we lived a life characterized by fear, chaos, and insecurity, rootlessness. Um, we were very transitory, moved in the middle of the night. Adults came and went in the middle of the night because they were wanted. And we experienced, you know, waking up in the morning, not knowing who had come 
and who had left. And just every morning was like, oh, who's here now? Mm. And um, so it was it was very um, a very volatile environment and very extreme um, practice of religion mm. that, that I grew up in. Now you say transitory, and I, having read the book, I think what a what a kind word to describe your circumstance. Um, when you when you read your stories, and you, it literally is like the middle of the night where you're woken up, and it's almost as if this happens often enough that you don't even ask questions. You just get up, you hop in, you tell a story about being thrown in the back of you know you kind of have to climb in the back of a U-Haul type moving truck, mm-hmm. and don't yeah. know where don't know where you're headed. You just yeah. Um, now, in the home that you let's say, let's give that illustration for for sake. Um, you know, how many people? Like, how many? Your dad didn't live with you. Um, no. How many? Your mom was with you sometimes. How many other sister wives might be living with you at any given point? We lived usually two or more of the sister wives would share a home, along with their um, multiple children, and so my mom herself had. Um, 12 children and she was also raising the children of another of her sister wives that had died of cancer so she had her younger children and then there was another one of my father's wives that went to prison for having committed one of the um, hits that he had ordered so we um, we were also um, part my mother was also raising her children as well Um, And just um, like I said, we're going to, by necessity, I think need to jump around a little bit here. But, you know, you talk about one of the sister wives going to jail for for committing a murder on on your father's behalf. Could you talk about what those murders were generally related to? There there is a um, a doctrine or a tenant of the original teachings of uh, the founder of the modern day LDS religion. Um, that Joseph Smith taught and that Brigham Young taught that is called blood atonement. And the way my father um, practiced that was, and the way we were taught it was, there are some sins that you commit that cannot be covered by the blood of Christ. Therefore, you have to atone for your sin with your own blood. And so it's, it's a really, really backwards way of my father being able to do away with the people that knew too much and that wanted out. Hmm. And so if they had quote known the truth and then turned their back on the truth, then they needed to be blood atoned Hmm. in order to, uh, in order to ensure their salvation in the afterlife. And part of this is rooted in the idea that the fault your, your dad's followers, um, they had beliefs about what his that he had a special role in God's kingdom somehow, right? Yes, he was he was the one true prophet according to the um, what we were taught, and in the in the in the doctrines and in the tenets of the sacred texts that my father believed in, um, they they talk about the one mighty and strong. We can put that in quotes. Okay. The one mighty and strong was the one that God was going to send to earth to set his house in order. And there could only be one. And so anyone that claimed to be the one mighty and strong that wasn't my father also had to be done away with because Mm -hmm. they were false prophets and, you know, teaching false religion. And so, Mm -hmm. so there were, I mean, my father was responsible for the deaths of anywhere from 28 to 38 people, depending on which investigator is, you know, is doing the counting mm. and, um, and including rival leaders of other polygamous groups and followers of his that dared to turn away. Right. Because you had people that dared to turn away. You had even maybe a brother or something. I can't remember if it was his brother or something where others thought that they were the the one true prophet, right? The Right. Okay. It was after my father passed away and he died in prison because the FBI finally did catch up with him. Well, no, it was the Mexican police that caught up with him. And then 
just like you see in the movies, he was taken to the Mexican-American border where the FBI agents were waiting for him on the other side. Hmm. And then he was tried and convicted of, I mean, he never pulled the trigger on anyone that I'm aware of. Hmm. But he was convicted of for the deaths of a rival cult leader and um, sentenced to life in prison and died in prison when I was 12. Hmm. And that, um, him dying left a vacancy in that position of, quote, the one mighty and strong, hmm. that there was so much bloodshed done <clears throat> after the fact and in the years following of people um, that were um, calling themselves the one that he had, you know, left the mantle to or whatever that, hmm. you know, that wanted to take over. Right, and he had like left a hit list apparently or something behind, right? Identifying people that had been, you know, um, were trying to leave or were being problematic. And right, well, the it uh, the the gist of it is that he had ordered his followers to come, guns a blazing, is how it was described to me, hmm. um, to the prison, to a maximum security prison, to bust him out. And when the followers who were in their right minds said they're not going to do that that's just a suicide mission um they all of them got put on a list hmm. let me ask a question that it i mean i've read the book and i hear you say this stuff and there's this there seems to be this obvious question is how does somebody you know how do these followers some of them can make sense hey running into this maximum security prison may not be a great idea mm-hmm. but but before you get to that um there's got to be people wondering how does somebody find themselves in a place where they're following somebody like this? I know you're, you talked about the fact that your father was described as a very, you know, influential, persuasive guy, but I mean, from your perspective, at least what you've heard, how do people get drawn into following somebody like him? Well, a lot of the people that followed him were um, originally in uh, people that grew up in or were part of, the modern day um, LDS, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And because my father um, read and understood and, and believed in the original teachings of the LDS prophet, the founder of the LDS church, Joseph Smith, he, my father believed that once Joseph Smith smoke, spoke those things, there was no changing them. And so the modern day LDS church disavowed polygamy in 1890. And then as the, the church has um, grown and, and transitioned into a more modern, modern and more acceptable belief systems, uh, societally acceptable belief systems, I would say, um, they, my father believed that they were the ones who had turned their back mm. on the teachings of their prophet, Joseph Smith. So he saw himself as more of a purist. He was very much a purist. And, and then he took those things and really practiced a very extreme version. Um, There are people who have studied and there's a lot of information online about the original teachings of Joseph Smith, the way Joseph Smith lived his life, Brigham Young, um, the, the founding leaders of the LDS church and the way my father practiced it was an extreme version, but very much more similar to the way they, those men lived their lives as opposed to the modern day practice of the Mormon faith. Hmm. Now I imagine that your story, I met in the same way that probably Baptist people get really upset when Westboro Baptist gets in the news or something. I imagine Mm -hmm. the, the modern, kind of Mormon church would be um, trying to distance themselves quite a bit from folks like your dad. Um, Yes. And there is in the front of the book, there's a note from the author that where I very clearly differentiate between the modern day practice of the Mormon church and the way my father um, lived out what he believed Joseph Smith's teachings were. Now, do you still have any kind of relationship with the Mormon church or are you separated from that now or no, I never really had, um, I was never really part of that faith practice. 
Um, and here's why. When I was growing up, I, I was three years old when my father ordered the very first hit on his very on his own brother. Hmm. And so from the time I was three until I ran away from home at age 13, our family was on the run from the law. And hmm. so there wasn't a lot of spiritual formation, spiritual teachings, you know, Sunday school type lessons for the children in that group, just because they were more worried about um, not being found by the authorities and hmm. the things that they were uh, doing and a part of. And, you know, all, all this was happening and sur- swirling around about me, even though I was very unaware that people that I loved and cared about were dying. Hmm. Like people came and went in the night and when they were left, you didn't ask questions about who was where and who went where and who, where people were. You weren't allowed to ask questions. So I didn't know. Hmm. And so I wasn't really raised with a lot of spiritual teaching and training, even though there was an occasional Sunday school lesson for the kids where we were taught about Joseph Smith in the garden when he had the vision, you know, that, that found that he talks about that founded that religion. Hmm. Um, we were taught the Ten Commandments, which is so ironic. <laughs> you know, thou right. shalt not steal, and we're dumpster diving behind the grocery stores and stealing out of the Goodwill boxes to feed and clothe ourselves. And then people are being killed left and right. Hmm. And, and it says, thou shalt not steal, and we're being taught the Ten Commandments, which is laughable. Right, and it <laughs> sounds like the, the only thing you guys were taught to pray about was praying that your dad would be released from prison, right? Right. In a way, that was very true. <laughs> well, um, you know, you kind of say some of these things in passing again. How old are you when you realize, before you realize that as you look back over your childhood, your earlier years, that you guys were on the run from, from authorities? I mean, at what point did you even... You definitely share throughout your story that you guys were taught not to talk to authorities and not to tell them anything. But when did you realize that you guys were on the truly on the run? We always knew that we were being persecuted because we were God's chosen people. And that's why the FBI would raid our homes and the Mexican police would raid our homes. They were looking for group members and my father. Hmm. Um, but that's what we were taught. I was not aware until I was 15 when I first got a hold of a book that had been written about my dad called The Prophet of Blood. Mm. And I read this book and my eyes, like the scales fell from my eyes about my family history. And that was when I became aware mm. of all the violence that had taken place around me without me being aware, which is why the publisher made the book cover the way they did with those sensor bars on my eyes, because there were things I was not allowed to see and that I didn't see until I was 15 mm-hmm. and out, out of the group. Cause I ran away when I was 13. And it is fascinating. If somebody knew that you had tried to run away from all of this, they would have assumed it was because you knew of the, of the violence and the killing and things, but actually that isn't what it wasn't specifically that, right? No, it was not specifically that, um, that, that triggered me to, um, the, the events that caused me to run away. Well, let me touch on one thing before we get sort of to that when your life began to change there, because one aspect of your story that was where you tell a number of really um, just, I mean, fascinating stories about, it sounds like you guys basically, because you were on the run and going from small place to obscure place in Mexico and, and Denver and Texas, and um, that you basically lived in poverty because of it. Um, and it kind of extreme poverty, it sounds like. And um, you tell a story about as a, I don't remember how old you were in Mexico, but I thought you were eight or nine years old. But where you're getting sent door to door as this uh, young white girl in Mexico selling cake and being put on buses by yourself. And would mm-hmm. you be willing to describe that story just a little bit of what you were forced to do down there? Oh, yeah, I was I was nine years old when I was sent to go live in Mexico with people that I was not familiar with that were recent converts to my father's church. And I use that term loosely. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got sent down there and, and just, to, and before you go any further, your mom wasn't with you. She just, you just were sent off, right? She, she was the one who drove us down there and okay. left us. Oh. And 
And so usually my mom, my mom was gone a lot. She had a lot of stuff that she was involved in that she was doing work for my father. So she would leave. And then like a day or so later, it'd be like, oh, where's mom? Like she didn't usually tell us. And so we accepted the fact that she would be gone. And then we would wake up like, oh, she's gone. She's not coming back. (laughs) How long would she be gone for? Days and sometimes weeks. Mm. And we would be left in the care of an older sibling, sometimes 13, 14 year old with caring for all these children for days and weeks on end Mm. with a little pack of food stamps and, and the, you know, just here's the phone number to call if there's an emergency. If I call collect, here's the code. Like this is the word you say as long as everything is okay. Mm. But if you have an issue, use this word instead when I call and then we'll make the call go through and we'll pay the collect charges, you know? I mean, it was just that um, very not stable. Mm. So my mom was gone often. And then, and then this time she took us to Mexico and left us there. And again, she would, she left and I wasn't sure where she was, where she was, where we were, Mm. whether I would see her again. I mean, it was just all very, um, unstable and very, very rootless. No Mm. hometown feeling at all. Right. You're a nine-year-old in Mexico. You don't have a cell phone with a Google maps on it or something. right? (laughs) So yeah. And so that leads right into this. I would be sent out with a, a plate with a cake on it that had been sliced up. And I would go door to door with this plate with a cake on it, selling slices of cake to the neighbors. And this was, this is what I did to help pull my own weight and carry my own weight in that home in that household. And as I got to know the surrounding area, I was able to venture further and further out. And I had to kind of learn my way by landmarks and, you know, things that, you know, would help me kind of guide me back home. Mm. (laughs) So I'm nine years old, a little blonde girl down in the heart of Mexico, selling cake door to door. Mm. It wasn't always cake, though. Sometimes we would paint rocks and I would go door to door selling painted rocks as, quote, paperweights which the people that we were, I was selling to probably couldn't afford these quote luxuries <laughs> any more than we could. And we, I was just doing my part to help um, feed the many people that lived in that home. Hmm. And at some point you talked about coming back when you came back to the States, you, you and your, one of your brothers, I think mm-hmm. you basically just got left on a bench somewhere and then like, yeah. Hey, we'll be back for you. Right. Yes. We, because none of us had legal papers to be able to cross into the United States because I was born in Mexico. I have a Mexican birth certificate. Um, I say I'm more Mexican than most Mexicans. I know, even though I'm (laughs) blonde and, you know, pale skinned, sunburned, you know, Mm. um, I, we were left on the Mexican side when one of my dad's sister wives or one of my dad's wives, um, drove us to the border, left us on the Mexican side on a little park bench and promised us ice cream if we would not move until she came back. Mm. And so what she did was she crossed over because she was a legal U S citizen and had papers for herself and her children. So she crossed over and then leaves her children in the truck on the other side Mm. and then walks across, you know, walks back across as a little day tourist. Mm. And then with her children's papers crosses us over because we were all kind of blonde, like her own children. And so she crossed us over illegally into the U.S. side. Well, and just in case anybody's concerned, I am a U.S. citizen. <laughs> my parents were U.S. citizens. My father is a U.S. citizen born abroad. My mother was born on the U.S. side. So I do have now a passport, which is proof of citizenship that I keep with me and I keep updated and I don't let expire. Well, Anna, there's so many things to, like I said, there's so much to cover here. People, you, like you said earlier, we can't cover it all. Um, you're back in the States at some point. You get back into the States and you're being moved around. Um, one of the one of the things that's woven throughout your stories, it seems like your family and a lot of the extended family all seem to be in this like uh, appliance business, like the used appliance mm-hmm. business. And if you would just describe for us sort of what your childhood, you basically were... 
I don't know if abuse is the right word, probably is. It sounds like you guys were basically breaking every child labor law um, mm-hmm. that would be in the books. Like, what was your childhood working like in these places? I, there's the only words to describe it is slave labor. We were worked like slaves. And you think about how much work can you really get out of a 10 or 11 year old child? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're beating them when they don't produce enough, you can get a lot of work out of a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I was not beaten very often just because I was a very compliant child and would do work what I was told and work hard and, and, um, so, cause I didn't want to be beat, but there were siblings of mine who had a little more fire in their belly and, you know, would back talk and would complain or would say the wrong thing to one of the grownups and they would just get beaten mercilessly. Mm. 39 lashes because that was biblical. You know, you couldn't do more than 39 and, you know, they would be left where they could not sit down mm. and, you know, their clothing removed to make it worse. You know, just, mm. it was, it was, um, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, verbally, physically, every kind of abuse was heaped on those of us who were part of that um, group. Hmm. And we did that, um, you know, 12 hour days during the summertime, 9am to 9pm, working all day, eating bean sandwiches, mashed beans on bread that was possibly moldy, because we couldn't afford to buy bread in the grocery store. We would go to the little bread thrift stores where you can get day-old bread, but that's not what the bread we bought either. Not the two-day-old bread or the three-day-old bread. Once it was no longer able to be sold, the stores would slice open the top of the plastic containing the bread, throw it in a big garbage bag, and it was intended as animal feed. Hmm. And that's what my mom would buy and bring home, and we would break off the little moldy parts or toast it because, you know, it had already started to harden because it had been sliced open. Mm. So a lot of the bread we ate was toasted just for that reason. Um, And there's an interesting dynamic that within the book is that you talk about, you know, dumpster diving as a family, you called it gardening, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is... Well, um, we would get sometimes produce, fruits and vegetables. So that's why it got the euphemism gardening. Well, and what's what's so interesting about though, whether is you paint these pictures of basically your mom back in the station wagon up to the dumpster or even to the Goodwill deposit bin that people put mm-hmm. clothes in. Mm-hmm. And um, in both scenarios, you're one of the people getting like that you're climbing into a Goodwill bin or you're climbing into a dumpster and you have all these like systems like if somebody comes mom's leaving and i have to hide because we can't get caught and so you tell these stories that are just really sad in many ways and there's like i mean it's just really sad and then there's this strange scene where on the other side of those you describe like getting home with these goodwill bags and all of a sudden it's sort of like this you know, like Christmas, like Christmas as a family <laughs> going through this, whether it be like, you know, used yogurt, you're all passing around or half melted ice cream, you guys are celebrating. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it sounds like this fun family vacation coming home. And it kind of messes with your mind, even as the reader. And I'm just wondering, how did you hold that dichotomy together growing up? Well, when that's all you know, um, it it's the only life you've ever known. And so you accept it as normal, as this is how it is, and you are taught to complain and you're groomed to one day just accept this lifestyle of polygamy, of being a sister wife with no voice, with no choice, and no free will. Hmm. So you're just groomed and taught from this young age to accept what life hands you, literally what life hands you. And even though as a small child, we were, we would be enrolled in school and we would get glimpses of what the outside world experienced. We were just taught not to complain or to ask about or even wish for something other than what we were given and handed to handed on a day day to day basis. And did the religious part play into that? I know you talked about, you know, authorities coming after you guys, the FBI or the Mexican police was 
there was always this sense that we're being persecuted because we're God's chosen people. Did, mm-hmm. did, did that play into your justifications even in some of these other areas of it was just different for us? Well, any type of negative thing that happened to us, we were taught to accept and that we were being persecuted as God's chosen people. And even some of the injustices that we experienced within the group dynamics themselves, mm-hmm. which there were many, we were taught to just shut up and yeah. and move on and not complain because there were injustices that happened. And you've described even being shamed for asking questions. Like if you were to ask something, not only would you mm-hmm. be at risk, but also be shamed for it. Yeah. Uh-huh. For sure. Mm-hmm. Because you can't have people asking questions in that environment and maintain control. Mm-hmm. Let me, um, there's, there's parts of this that are really, I, I started to say something to you at the, when we were first getting on the line. Um, there's some stuff in your story about the way that religion is used in this world that um it's it's so troubling to me and that doesn't we don't the story your story is sort of extreme um sort of sort of extreme abuses of it um but it was really troubling for me because i see so many principles of that kind of religious spirit that gets that hurts so many people in other ways today um and i i want to touch on that but before we got there there was um mark and lillian and i hope i'm saying her name right Mm-hmm. Um, they were two characters in your story that seemed to be really pivotal characters. And I, I did want to touch on them today just a little bit. Um, who were they and how did you end up with them? Lillian is my half-sister from my father's first wife. And Mark is her husband. They were one of the very rare couples in our group that were allowed to marry age mates and, you know, that and they maintained a monogamous relationship. Did you say age, Even, age mates? Yes. Normally, the, you know, girls are not allowed to even look googly-eyed at a boy their age. Oh, it's okay. just not permitted. Okay. It the the young men were sent away and sent out um, just so that the older men who were part of the group would have their choice of the child brides as the girls were becoming of marriageable age, which in our group was around age 15 when you were of marriageable age. And so young boys were sent away or sent off and, and taken out of the picture so that at any time there was uh, age mates looking at each other for any reason that might be remotely romantic, um, they would be separated and sent off or, you know, that was not permitted and allowed. Mark and Lillian had one of the very rare um, situations where they were allowed to marry each other and they somehow resisted um, being the pressure that they were both experiencing to make their marriage into a polygamist marriage. Hmm. And I call them the heroes of my story Mm. for sure yeah, because they were the ones who stepped in at just the right time and created a safe place for me to, to run off to when I ran away from home. And then it was their home that I um, came to when I was 13. They took me in and finished raising me. Yeah, there's, I, I definitely, that was the sense I got of, of who they were in your story. There was a, there's a part where you determined, I think it was one of those nights where you were told you knew you were going to be leaving the next day to go back mm-hmm. to a more abusive situation. And you were just like, mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. And, and you just called her, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember reading that person where I said, she just said, start walking. Is that, there was two words, yeah. like, I thought it was start walking, but. Mm-hmm. It's that, those are the exact words she said. Yeah, and it, it was, and, go ahead. And I, I did. I, I hung up the phone and, you know, took it out of the bathroom where I had taken the long cord and the phone, you know. Mm. Back in the 80s, that's how phones worked. Like long cords <laughs> attached, you know. Yeah. And I replaced it in the hallway and walked out of my house. And that was yeah. no small thing. We're talking, and then she's like hiding you in hotels, and I mean, this mm-hmm. is like major, um, a major operation just to get away, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was extremely a frightening experience for me, knowing that the route that I was walking to find her was the route that a lot of people in our group in the appliance business that we had. There were so many people that occupied each home, and mm-hmm. so many people that worked at the warehouse. 
So people were driving back and forth right along that same route. Mm-hmm. And I knew I could be spotted at any time and forcibly taken back. And so it was a frightening experience when I ran away from home. Mm-hmm. And, the, and in the middle of this, I just thought a really fascinating piece of this is that Mark seemed to be a um, um, really, I mean, maybe one of the more noble characters, like you said, the, one of the heroes of your story, where um, not only was were he and Lillian advocating for you, or they were safe enough for you to go to when you needed to get away, um, but you tell this story where Lillian at one point like shows you a letter from your father um, about Mark. And I wonder if you'd be able to, are you comfortable sharing that story? I mean, it's in your book, so I yeah, suppose no, you're comfortable on some level. Yeah, but. yeah it's, it was a, quite a, a few years after I had been living with them for a long time. I had become a believer by that time. Both of them were, had become believers and there was no, no chance of any type of polygamist relationship mm-hmm. between anybody in that whole household. And I feel like she felt safe enough to be able to share this letter with me that my father had written while he was in prison. And the letter was addressed to Mark and Lillian. And essentially, it was um, my father giving Mark permission to marry me as one of his polygamist wives as soon as my mother felt like I was um, of the age where I could be married off. Mm. And that was not the first time that my father had promised me to one of the men in his, uh, in his group. Yeah, I was promised to multiple men, depending on, we were basically pawns that my father, his daughters were pawns that my father would use to motivate the men to do his bidding. Hmm. And then the, the fascinating part of that was to you as disturbing as that was, it was actually mm-hmm. one of the first times you said that you even knew that your father kind of knew who you were. Yes. He he spelled out my name, my first and middle name, even though my middle name was spelled wrong. Um, he used my first and middle name, which was incredible to me that because I had only spent time with him under the same roof as him, maybe a handful of times that I'm aware of, mm. and only twice that I remember actually talking to him. Mm. So when I saw that he knew my name, my first and middle name, mm. and had written it out and spelled it out, that was like whoa, Hmm. it was a huge deal that my father knew my name. Hmm. And, you know, like you said, you have this really, um, compared to what you'd come from, this really healthier relationship with Mark and Lillian. And I don't, I certainly don't want you to have to dwell on this part of the story, but sort of um, if you'd be willing just real briefly to touch on, because there's almost sort of a miraculous circumstances that you're even here with us um, Mm -hmm. to share your story. Mm-hmm. of how you managed to survive sort of the murders. Is there no other way to say it, the four o'clock yeah. murder situation? Would, yeah. you, would you be willing to share how you managed to survive that? Yes. Um, there. Let hmm, me just back up just a little bit. Sure. When I, went, when I moved in with Mark and Lillian, they were still um, believers in the doctrines of the, uh, of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so they enrolled me in a, through a series of circumstances, which I, we don't have time for here, but I go through them in the book. They enrolled me in a little Christian school that was just down the road from their home. And it was there that I came to know Jesus as my savior. And then, um, and then because the church required that the parents have, that they attend one service a week, if they had a student enrolled in the school, Mark and Lillian both, you know, would get up and go to church and take their children, and and both of them eventually came to know Christ as well. Which, so I wanted. Which, to by the way, I thought that was fascinating because they were actually serving in the church before they were ever like followers of Jesus, right? Yes, <laughs> that's my understanding. Okay. So, so I wanted to preface telling that story that I'm getting ready to talk about. Yeah. Um, with that so that your listeners can understand that, um, that foundation <laughs> first. Mm, yeah. Um, my father, when he was in prison, left a, a hit list, and Mark's name was on it. It wasn't the first name on the list, but it was probably close to the second or third name. And w- in 1987, several years after I had 
um, we had all broken away and we were all part of this little church community and, you know, living our lives as normal as possible, even though it wasn't quite normal. Um, when one, the first person on that list was killed, and that was in 1987, and Mark sat us down, myself and his oldest son and his wife Lillian all sat down and we had a very sobering discussion about what that death meant to the rest of us. And he told us that there was a list and that he was on it and we were going to have to start being really careful and watching over our shoulders and um, uh, just being vigilant about, you know, anything that might look odd or out of place just because we knew that he was a target. And, you know, we lived in fear again for a, a period of time and then slowly but surely life kind of turns back to what normalcy we had mm-hmm. and then you know on the morning of june 27th 1988 um our worst fears came true in the most horrific unimaginable way possible and um three men and one of their uh, little girls that happened to be with him were killed in three different locations at the same time in Texas. Hmm. And that became known as the four o'clock murders because they have been right about four o'clock. I was supposed to be with Mark at the office at the appliance store that day. And had I been with him and had I been a witness to the crimes, I would have been killed too, Hmm. just like the little girl. And so um, it was my own full blooded brother um, that killed Mark in his uh, very misguided um, attempt to live out my father's wishes and teachings and to gain the blessings of God by committing these crimes and, hmm. and blood atoning these men that hmm. had turned their back on the truth, according to my father's teachings, you know. Hmm. And so that just became the, the worst day we could possibly imagine. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, all of a sudden, we're just thrown back into that whole um, sphere of living our life in fear and complete. Um, we were just frightened hmm. day and night about the, what could happen next. And until all of them were arrested, and and they were eventually arrested and convicted and you know sentenced to life in prison. Um, you know, we were we were left very frightened and very scared and very shaken. Um, and that was as bad as it could get. Um, but um, I think um, one of the things that also took place about seven months later is my sister um, committed suicide hmm. um, as a result of that. So I very much consider my father responsible for her death as well. Hmm. Um, it was just a very traumatizing experience all of it oh yeah and it took a long time for all of us to kind of regain our balance and regain that you know the spirit of aliveness that would hopefully be what characterizes our lives now Mm. and and it's been a struggle for for their six children that were left orphaned um for me, for anybody that knew and loved them, because even though they had been a part of my father's religion and 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 a part of the things that had happened, um, they were absolutely a hundred percent had had made a one eighty, and were wanting to live lives that were characterized by honor and um, morality and and goodness and kindness. And Mark Shanoth was one of the most kind men and honorable men that you would ever know. Well, I think you did a great job of communicating that in your book. Um, you can see the way that you that you felt about both Mark and Lillian and the, the respect you had for them and the the love you had for them and then the um and it made it that much harder when when you lost both of them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first time I, I, 
you know, I cried twice publicly reading your book. The first one, surprisingly, was I think I got set up by hearing that story. But then you talk about the funeral for the family and the FBI is still involved because you mm-hmm. guys are all at risk. And mm-hmm. and they'll just have to read the book to gather the details. But you describe this scene where there's men from the from the church who are literally forming a human shield behind you guys while you're grieving at the at the cemetery. And it's just a really powerful um it was just very powerful and it uh you know um don't even know what to say about that except <laughs> it's, thank you for sharing um such uh tender parts of your story i really appreciate that yeah i'm getting i'm all choked up just hearing you talk about it again because it was a powerful picture mm-hmm. of you know human beings and men rising up and and being men mm-hmm. and being protectors well, shoot, we're all crying here on the show today, you know. <laughs> I need a Kleenex. I don't have one handy. <laughs> well, we're not videoing it, so just use a sleeve if you got it. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'll do here. Um, well, look, let me um, let me just move you. There's no way to go through the whole story. After this, you kind of you went off to school, you got to college, and that was that was a hard thing to do. In the, it's a very it struck me as a part of the beginning of your healing almost um, in some ways and that you began to make some hard decisions for to take care of yourself, um, mm-hmm. which seemed like a really profound turning point in the story to me. Um, it was at least one step. Um, you went through some pretty strong depression during those times, understandably. Uh-huh. Um, and I laughed. I mean, I had to laugh because one of the things that got you out of it was a friend dragging you to a Sandy Patty concert to, and, I know. and wearing <laughs> jeans. And I just thought, how funny that, that <laughs> something like Sandy Patty would be the, the remedy to depression. Well, it wasn't technically Sandy Patty. Should we just, you know, spoil it for the readers? Okay. <laughs> it was actually the fact that we were changing clothes in the back seat of the car so that we could go to West End in Dallas, which is completely off limits and completely would have gotten us probably banished from the little Christian college that we were attending where that was absolutely against the rules. Hmm. That well, changing clothes in the back seat of that car. Scandalous. Where wondering it was just scandalous and you know when you're when you're raised and you grow up you know following the rules and and then you find yourself doing something that's completely wrong yeah. and against the rules you know it kind of gives you that a little adrenaline rush of oh my god am i gonna get caught yeah and you and said then, breaking the rules kind of helped set you free it was something about yeah. breaking the rules that you felt like was necessary yeah it, it did it did because it was in that little adrenaline rush that I experienced changing clothes in the backseat of that car that I felt alive again for the first time since mm. January when my sister took her own life. Mm. And, and, I, and that wasn't like, oh, now everything is rainbows and butterflies. It was just the very first glimmer of life that, that then allowed me to believe that I could feel alive again. Mm. Like hope, hope uh, showed up like in in a very small way, but it was, yeah. mm. And it was the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Ah, Now I'm crying again. Oh no, it's good. I mean, I'm just, I can't thank you enough for being willing to share your heart with us. Um, Mm. Partly just for the beauty of your own story. Um, but like I was kind of saying earlier, the circumstances that you've journeyed through are so extreme, and yet the principles that you've that your life has reflected are not principles that have not touched other people's lives, myself, other people listening that that have been controlled by fear, you know, and that has had religion used to, you know, try and control them and shame them and, you know, atonement. It's like this idea of trying to earn God's favor and. Um, right. That God is this angry, angry figure waiting to be, uh, you know, um, I don't know, assuaged or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talked a little bit towards the end of the book. You talked about the the breath of God making you come alive and this idea that that we're spiritual beings inhabiting a physical body. And I wonder if you'd just be able to kind of describe how it seems like your hope became kind of flowered in that in that space. Yeah. Um, There were a lot of years separating that first initial glimmer of hope and aliveness that 
there were so many years passed before I, I was a grown adult woman with children of my own before I began to experience God in a way that that was very life transforming. Um, I, I can look back on my life and see his God's fingerprints and his handprints all over the events and the circumstances that I've lived through. Mm. Um, except when I was a grown adult ha- with children of my own, I, I think I was finally separated enough and had grown enough. And I, I don't think that, let me just back up a bit. Okay. I think that everybody that experiences any kind of trauma or abuse, and not just the kind of abuse that leaves marks and scars on your body, mm-hmm. but the hidden abuses that leave the marks and scars on your heart and the skin of your soul. Mm-hmm. The, those are hidden abuses. Any type of psychological, verbal, emotional, spiritual abuse. Um, anyone who's experienced any of that can identify with the themes of my book. Mm-hmm. And it's, you, once you're grown an adult, your own self, and you've, and you've had an opportunity to maybe separate a little bit or a lot from the people responsible for that, it, that's when you can begin your healing journey. Mm. And it took me a long time to get there. Hey, can I interrupt before you get, because it sounds like you're going to move more toward two things. Number one, this is sort of, you talked about all those years in between. And that's sort of what I was alluding to at the the outset of our conversation where I I just, it's very clear that this is not like, ooh, I had a little conversation with somebody and I've come through on the other side. You've done years of of work on your, you know, with counselors and and God on on your own. Um, But one piece that you wrote about that I think would be helpful for us all to hear is that you talked about, you know, your mom, you still loved her through all this. She loved you, you knew, and yet she was still a part of some of this. Um, and you talked about this dichotomy of wanting to almost lash out at her in anger and at the same time wanting to protect her and you not wanting to cause her any more pain. Mm-hmm. And um, that just seemed like something that a lot of people might resonate with, where they find themselves in that tension of being angry and yet not wanting to hurt someone. And I wonder what you might say to that. Well, I, I do um, have a lot of conflicting feelings about my own mother. Um, she's still alive. She's 86 years old and and still believes in the practice of polygamy. Mm-hmm. She's not currently practicing it. Um, she lives in a community and lives with her sister wives. Um, and they're, they're all widowed because their husband that he spiritually married um, has passed away. Um, but she still believes in that. And so when I w- began the process of writing the book, um, before I started writing, I always thought I'll I'll just wait until my mom passes away because I don't want to cause her a lot of pain mm-hmm. in in telling all these stories because I didn't spend a lot of time a lot of my life with my own mother because we were separated a lot and then I ran away at thirteen, mm-hmm. so I knew she didn't know a lot of the things that had happened to me. She was aware of some of them; she was there, but for a lot of it, she wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I knew that me telling this story was going to cause her pain. And there was a part of me, and I think most people that are just good, kind people don't want to purposely cause pain to anyone. Right. And so I, um, that's not what God had in mind. And so when I finished the book, as I was writing, I told my mom that I would come and read her the trans or the manuscript once I was com- once it was complete, and I did. I got on a plane and spent a week with her. And, and it was a, a really um, life-shaping and life-transforming experience just to hmm. have her weep over the things that I'd experienced. Even though she still believes in the practice of polygamy, and that practice is the thing that devastated and shattered so many lives. Hmm. And so, so there is a lot of conflicting feelings there. And yet, because I have received so much grace and so much mercy from our Heavenly Father, I am able to um, to give that out. You can't give away anything that you haven't received. Hmm. And so because I have received those things, I am able to be a conduit of that to my mother hmm. and, and and offer it freely to her, even though 
there's still this really um, a lot of tension in our relationship because of the things that she continues to believe in and the practices that she continues to believe in. Hmm. I it's it would be hard for me to put into words how beautiful um, the imagery is of you being willing to sit with your mother while she read the read your story. Um, it's one of the more Christ-like moments I've ever seen skin on when you're sitting there with someone who's been a part of such deep hurt in your life. And yet, like you said, you've experienced so much grace and compassion in your own life that you had that to offer. Um, but, um, yeah, I, it does leave me wondering for, you know, as we think through as your story, um, unfolded and you, and you walk this journey, you, you're, you're even dealing with your mom with it. You have these tensions left over, but you're, you know, you've got your own family now. Um, and that's, you've had plenty of story with that too, but you've got five great kids now. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what are the questions? Cause like I said, people have to get the book. The book is the polygamous daughter by Anna LeBaron. Go get it on Amazon right now or her website, AnnaLeBaron.com. <laughs> but for the little plug there, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's so many questions that, that remain this, your story almost brings up as many questions about God and about, um, pain in this world and what God is like. And it almost brings up as many questions in people's hearts as it does answers while still describing the beauty of, of God's mercy in your life. And as well, what, what do you find yourself wishing that people were asking or, or is there something else that you just hope that people would walk away with after hearing your story? I hope that people walk away with a sense of hope for themselves and a sense of some strength that they may have gathered from reading the story, from hearing it or um, engaging with that, um, or even just listening to this podcast. You know, just um, I hope that people that have experienced any kind of trauma or abuse or any kind of difficulty, especially with man-made religion and, you know, religion that is um, not depicting the, far, the heart of the Father mm. to, to, to the people on earth. Uh, and there's a wide assortment of religions that um, would fall underneath that category, not just the one, the kind that I came from. Yeah, religion seems to be an equal opportunity oppressor when people abuse it, doesn't it? Yeah. And I, I talk about spiritual abuse having as negative a consequence as sexual abuse or emotional abuse, physical mm-hmm. abuse on the heart of, of people because it can be as bad or even worse in some cases if it removes any type of connection that you have with God mm-hmm. and, then, and, and leaves you without that connection. And so I hope that people would ask the questions that you're that you're asking me about here, that people would say, is there more than what I've experienced? Hmm. Is it can it be better? Can it be different than what I've already experienced that was negative and um, that left you with shame or um, left you with condemnation, left you with any type of negative feelings towards the God of the universe? That, that created you and wants to have a relationship with you that's real and palpable and, and experiential. Hmm. That's been my experience, and it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in one fell swoop once and done, and all, all of a sudden things are just rainbows and butterflies. Mm-hmm. That, that is not even the case today. My life isn't just rainbows and butterflies <laughs> today. There are certain aspects of my life and certain aspects of the trauma and the abuse that I experience that has a residual effect. Sure. That, you know, you, you live and you breathe and you, you have your being in a way that um, sometimes leads me to the heart of the Father even more. Hmm. And still. Hmm. Well... You know, your story is sort of the living embodiment of what Fearless Questions is about, what this whole thing is that I'm a part of here is that, you know, you talk in your book about, you know, you're, you had these, as a younger person, you had these questions that remain unasked, but they never left your mind. Mm-hmm. And, and it's sort of this journey of you being willing to, 
to lean into the questions and, and you just started walking, you know, you get on the phone, you're like, I can't do this anymore. And you take a step in the other direction and one step after another, and you followed your questions and to freedom. And part of that freedom seems like it was finding the, what God was really like, like what his heart really was towards you. And that it sounds like maybe you, you know, you, you kind of described that you discovered a father that was, that you didn't know was loving you the whole time. It seemed to be this beautiful sort of revelation at the end of your story. Yeah. One, the, the man that wrote the foreword in my book, his name is Bob Hamp. Um, he was the pastor of Freedom Ministries at Gateway Church for a long time, for many, many years, and was very instrumental in my spiritual formation in the past two, you know, decade or so. Um, he, he gives the definition of freedom as freedom is becoming the person that you were created and redeemed to be. Hmm. And that word becoming is so key because it doesn't happen overnight for most people. For some people it does. It's a transformation that is just amazing and they're never the same again. And for others, for most, the you know, freedom and becoming is, is a process. And that's been my story is that freedom has been a process. Hmm. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you just have an incredible story, um, an even more incredible heart that you're willing to share with people. I know you're traveling the country right now sharing your story and about your book. I hope that people that are listening will get your book. I hope that they'll read it. And I'm, I hope that the people that do read it and have some stuff like you mentioned earlier that bubbles up in their own journey, that they, that they reach out to someone um, take mm-hmm. a chance and share your story with someone that you trust. Um, mm-hmm. Take that first step. Um, and like you said, you have some resources on your website as well um, mm-hmm. that might be able to help them along in that way. Yeah. Okay. That, that would be my, my a joy is for to know that me sharing my story began a freedom journey for others. Mm. So good, Anna. So good. Um, thank you for joining us and um, I can't wait to catch up with you in the near future thank you Jeff I appreciate the opportunity to share my story with your listeners All right. bye-bye bye bye